Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, it's important that we take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord, to make sure that we are ready to focus and study on his word. Scripture teaches that if we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that our sins are eternally and permanently forgiven. But if we commit sins during our day-to-day experience, those sins need to be forgiven experientially, and that comes through confession of sin, simply admitting or acknowledging our sins uh, to him uh, in the privacy of silent prayer. When, we're, when we commit sin, we're out of fellowship. It stifles the full ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in producing uh, spiritual growth and, in, and developing our spiritual life. So it's important for us to keep short accounts and to make sure that we are uh, in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, abiding in Christ, and applying his word. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to just to reinforce this principle, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful and grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and that we have your word before us, that God the Holy Spirit has revealed this through the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles of the New Testament, and that each verse, each sentence, each paragraph bears the mark of divine authorship. And one of the most remarkable evidences of that divine authorship has to do with prophecy For you alone uh, declare the end and the beginning, and you are the one who lays out all of human history. By studying your word, we come to understand the purpose and scope of all of history, but we understand where we fit within that scope and that each of us has our own role to play in that history, and our own individual histories are crucial and vital in the overall framework of what you are accomplishing within human history and in demonstrating your integrity and bringing glory to yourself. And so, Father, as we take this time now to study your word, may we be willing to submit our thinking to your word, recognizing that the only thing that matters is that we align ourselves to 
to you, to your word, because you're the one who defines and declares reality. And so, Father, we pray as we study that we might be able to focus and concentrate and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the things that we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, which is a shift in focus from where uh, we began in our study in the 6th chapter. Now, in the 6th chapter, back that up, lost that slide. In the 6th chapter, the focus is on what's going on on earth as God is beginning this series of judgments. Three series of judgments are brought forth as part of God's judgment on the human race because of the human race race's rejection of God's grace. The church, that is the universal body of Christ, as the Bible teaches, that everyone in this age who puts their faith alone in Christ alone is immediately regenerated. They become part of the body of Christ through what is called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And this age will end at what is called the rapture of the church. There will then be an interlude or transition period. We don't know how long that will be. And then a a final seven-year period will come known as the tribulation. The first part of that tribulation sees these six seal judgments. And as we've seen in the previous uh, part of chapter 6 at the very end, a critical question is uh, addressed somewhat rhetorically by those in judgment But the question relates to who can survive this wrath, this judgment that God is pouring out, especially considering this is in the very early part of the tribulation period, probably the first uh, year and a half, 18 months to 24 months, something like that. We can't be uh, very precise. But as I pointed out in the last several weeks, that what lies behind that question is an even more fundamental question, one that that, address, that uh, touches each of us because at various times in our own lives we encounter various degrees of, of adversity and suffering and personal hardship. And often when people go through very difficult times, the question they ask has to do with this uh, question related to God's uh, fairness or justice in history. How can a loving God really let these kinds of things happen to those who love him, does God really love me uh, even when I'm going through these kinds of uh, situations? How can he uh, put me through this type of suffering and still love me? So this question of suffering, this question of the ongoing existence of evil in human history is an extremely uh, basic, basic question. And what we see under, and that's the question we see that underlies the events in chapter 7. To really understand the significance of chapter 7, we have to realize that there are various themes and threads that run through scripture that uh, inform us as to what is happening here and why this is such a tremendous passage. It's just not uh, not fully understood just in terms of its very surface. And so I pointed out that as we uh, come to this chapter, we have basically two questions. The first is who can stand, who can survive, and the seventh chapter answers that. There's two groups. 
the Jewish group in the first part of the chapter, the 144,000 who were sealed, and then there's a Gentile group, uh, the, the martyrs represented by the group that is innumerable in the second part of the chapter. Some may say, well, where's the church? Well, the church, as I pointed out, has already been raptured, and what we see here is God returning to an emphasis on Israel that uh, was... Uh, left out during the church age. In the church age, the uh, focus on Jewish ethnicity is not central to God's saving work. Uh, the Jewish, uh, the Israel, Jewish dispensation ended with the, the uh, crucifixion of Christ. Church age dispensation began with the day of Pentecost. And in the body of Christ, your relationship to, physical relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a non-issue. In the body of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. It is not a spiritual issue. So there's this shift that occurs during the tribulation period. The second part of the question is the one I pointed out, how can a loving God pour out such wrath upon his creatures and even more on believers because we know that there will be millions that come to trust Christ as Savior during the tribulation period. And it is interesting as this we look at this question that the focus I pointed out is on God's character. How can a just, loving God do this? It focuses on his justice and his love. It focuses on his character. So I've uh, set up this uh, basic proposition here that God's character is demonstrated most fully in a universe where evil is allowed to continue for a time in order for God to fully judge evil and end suffering. It is not that God has somehow lost control. Uh, God is somehow impotent. God has forgotten about you. He's asleep at the switch. He's more concerned about things in Iraq than he is here. It's none of those things. It is that God is working out something that has a much uh, greater and higher purpose. And so I pointed out that in relation to the first part, God's character relating to his righteousness, justice, uh, love, that God is in control. That's the message that comes across in Scripture, that no matter how much it may seem that the affairs in our life are out of control or that the trends of history are out of control, the Scriptures say that God is in control and he is working out his purposes. And then uh, the second uh, observation that I've added to this is that God has a purpose, though we may not fully comprehend it, but we can understand and comprehend aspects of it, and we are to trust in him that he knows what is best. As Abraham put it in questioning God in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 17, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So all of that is a backdrop to understanding what's happening in chapter 7. Furthermore, this involves these four things, the nature of God. We have to really understand the essence of God, what it means that he is just, that he is righteous, that he uh, is love. We have to understand the nature of evil and suffering. The problem is the way most people approach these two topics is to minimize and dilute them so that God really isn't very powerful. God is somewhat uh, overwhelmed by all of this evil or that evil and suffering are not really that bad. In fact, there are certain systems of thought that deny their real existence completely. A third aspect is just the nature of justice. 
Uh, sometimes we get impatient, think justice should happen right now, but God is going to work all things out and judge evil. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about, is how God is ultimately going to resolve the question of evil and suffering. And that brings, in to, brings to bear this fourth principle, which has to do with the uh, divine purpose in history. And we saw that this relates to uh, the rebellion of Satan against God in eternity past. This is what we refer to by the term the angelic conflict or the angelic rebellion. And we uh, saw a couple of weeks ago how Lucifer, who was the highest, the most beautiful, the most intelligent of all of God's creatures, decided that he wanted to be like God. It was a volitional decision on his part. The angels were created with uh, free will, and this was a decision that he made. There were no external factors. It was just a decision that he uh, came to as he observed the adoration, the glory that was given to God. He said in his heart, I want that. I want to be God. I think I can do a better job than than God. So the basic challenge that he threw out was to that he could do a better job than God. And so the question that lies before the angels is who's going to be the boss? Who's going to be the king? Who's going to rule? Who is God? And that question was not fully resolved in the initial angelic conflict. There was a judgment after a third of the angels followed Satan after a period of time. And there was a sentence passed that these rebellious angels would go to the lake of fire. The lake of fire was created, according to Matthew twenty-five forty-one. It has been created for the devil and his angels, but they're not there yet. And the question then is, well, why not? And the answer is because God is going to demonstrate why no creature can be God. No creature can act like God, and that only uh, God can rule the universe. And so God is going to be demonstrating in history the answer to this question as to how and why a loving God can send his creatures to a lake of fire, why a loving God can allow evil and suffering to exist for a time and for a purpose. And so that relates to the divine purpose for history. Now, there's a lot of folks, and I know this, there are a lot of folks who just don't really appreciate the study of history. They never had a good history teacher when they were young. They never had a good history professor when they were in college. And that's generally because if you don't understand what the Bible says, that history is the outworking of God's plan, then history just becomes uh, what Henry Ford said one time, just one damn thing after another. And it has no meaning or reason to it. It's just one event, then another event, and it's just so everything's random and everything is chaotic. But when we look at history from the biblical perspective, we realize that God is in control. God began history. He is working out in history his plans and his purposes to an ultimate resolution. And each of us, in terms of our own personal history, plays a vital role within the broad history of the human race, which began with the creation of Adam and Eve and will go on past the end of Revelation 21. So we have to understand how important this is uh, for us to understand our role and our place within history. So studying these things isn't just some sort of abstract 
uh, doctrine or theology, but it really impacts how we begin to think and focus about just the suffering, the adversity, the disappointments that we face in our own life. Well, at the center of history, looking at it biblically, at the center of history, we find a unique people. These people are the Jews. The Jews are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just Abraham, not just Isaac, not just Jacob, but the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is grounded upon a contract, a legal contract or promise that God made with Abraham approximately 2,000 B.C. And this really becomes a framework for understanding all of history from that point up to the present and beyond. So we look at the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is given in a summary form in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's reiterated several more times in Genesis chapter 13 and Genesis 15 Genesis 17. And it's reiterated to his son Isaac, and it's uh, reiterated to uh, his grandson Jacob. And it was appropriate this morning that we sang that hymn, The God of Abraham praise because that focuses our attention on this crucial element even though because of the you know the meter and rhythm and uses Jehovah instead of Yahweh and we all know Jehovah is just sort of a invented name but we're not going to get off into all of that this morning three elements to the Abrahamic covenant land seed and blessing God promises a specific piece of real estate to Abraham and to his descendants His descendants are described under this word seed, and ultimately that takes on a very restricted meaning. So it's very important to follow this term all the way through the Bible. And then, uh, last but not least, that through this seed, all nations, not just the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but all nations would be blessed. Now, each of these elements is further expanded in additional contracts in the Old Testament. You have the land covenant, sometimes called the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 30, which reiterates the promises related to the land. You have the seed promise. That's part of our focus this morning, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that the uh, seed, the blessing of the seed would come through the descendants of David, and God would establish through David an eternal seed and an eternal uh, uh, throne. And then the blessing aspect is expanded in Jeremiah 31 in what is called the uh, New Covenant. Now, we have to understand that as a backdrop because this sets apart the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a unique way. God made certain promises to them that they would have that land and they would establish a kingdom there, and then the second covenant, the Davidic covenant, establishes the uh, lineage for the king who rules over that kingdom. Now, this is important because within the angelic conflict, Satan's accusation is that God really can't do what God wants to do. He's not good enough, powerful enough, loving enough to really be God, so Satan can make a better case for being God. And part of his assault in history, is to prevent God from fulfilling his promises to Abraham. 
to keep him from fulfilling the blessing promise, which ultimately was fulfilled at the cross and will be implemented in the new covenant when Jesus Christ returns and also through the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now, when we look at the Davidic covenant, uh, that was promised and laid out in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, Psalm 89, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. There were three elements, an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Now, Satan is going to try to block God. Just imagine a, a cosmic chess game. and He's going to try to block God and checkmate God and to keep him from fulfilling his promises to Israel. So his attempt prior to the cross was to attack the seed of Abraham and to attack the seed of David. Now, all of this fits with, I don't want you to lose sight of where we are. We're in Revelation 7, and we're studying about why God is calling out these 144,000 Jews and sealing them, and why he's returning his focus to the Jews at the, at the end time. Now, to understand all of the uh, implications of that and the importance of that, I'm taking you back into the Old Testament to work through this this flow of history so that you see why this is so crucial and why this is so important. In the Old Testament, Satan attempts to destroy the seed, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through David in terms of both of these covenants by wiping out the Davidic line. Now, this is a rather complicated story and I'm assuming, and I may be wrong, that most of you aren't very familiar with the, this aspect of Old Testament history because like many today, we just don't have a lot of Christians who spend a lot of time reading through a lot of these events in the Old Testament. Some of you have a little more knowledge, some of you less, so I'm just going to make a good uh, pedagogical assumption that none of you have ever heard this before, and that way everybody gets covered in the process. It's a complicated story because it involves two or three different uh, families. It involves unfamiliar names, unfamiliar geography, and events that happened uh, some uh, probably close to almost 3,000 years ago, about 2,900 years ago. But as we go through this, I want you to pay a little bit of attention to how Satan is really working behind the scenes and he is using both religion and politics to accomplish his end. Now, by religion, I mean false religion. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship with God based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But all other systems of spirituality, so to speak, religious systems, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, New Age metaphysics, whether it's Judaism or Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, the Mormons, and these are all sort of Christian aberrations, and many denominations within Christianity that are off-base biblically put the emphasis on human morality, human works, human effort to somehow impress God, please God, thinking that somehow by doing a certain amount of good things, we can negate the bad things. 
And, you know, they, there's a real simple argument to refute that. If any of you have ever had a traffic ticket, and you all are very angelic-looking this morning, so I don't think any of you have ever had any sort of traffic infraction, but if you have such a thing, and you appear before the judge, try to convince him that all of those times that you obeyed the speed limit or didn't run the stop sign or didn't run the traffic light, that that somehow counteracts that one time that you got caught speeding or running the stop light or stop sign or something like that. See, it doesn't work. You can't negate the negative with the positive. It doesn't work in any of our experiences. Why do people think God is so idiotic that he would do that? I don't know. boggles the mind. So Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship based on faith in Jesus Christ grounded on the grace of God. Now, one of the first attacks that Satan had against the seed of David occurred about 150 years after David's death. It involved a complex series of assaults that were engineered through the family of a king in the northern kingdom. This begins after the kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes split in the rebellion at the death of, of Solomon into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, two, kings, two, king, uh, two, two tribes in the south, ten tribes in the north. And about 100 years after David died, about 50, 60 years after Solomon died, you had a revolt in the north. You had a series of coups that took place, and one general uh, came to the throne by the name of Omri, and it's his family that really brings evil into the northern kingdom. His son is known as Ahab, and it is through Ahab's family and his marriage that some of the most perverted forms of religion was introduced into the northern kingdom. It was the worship of the Phoenician god Baal, who was a fertility god, and his consort uh, Asherah. And all of this is based upon uh, tremendous perversion of uh, sexuality and fertility rites that occurred in various uh, place, high places that they set up uh, around the land. And this was uh, a per, such a perverse form of idolatry that God was going to have to judge them very, very harshly. But before he did... Uh, that uh, evil form of religion really prospered both in the north, northern kingdom, and in the south. So our first thing we're going to look at is these attempts to destroy the Davidic seed through the false religion of Baalism. And we're going to be talking about Ahab and, Je and his wife Jezebel and Jehoram, who is a king in the south, and his son Ahaziah, and Jehoram's wife Athaliah, who is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And Athaliah is worse than Jezebel. She is much more evil. Now, just so you don't lose track, I thought I'd put a little genealogical chart up here. The left is the southern kingdom, the right is the northern kingdom. We have David and his son Solomon, and then there were several generations to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king, loved the Lord, was obedient. He had a son named Jehoram who would succeed him on the throne in the southern kingdom, and Jehoram had six brothers. Jehoram married Athaliah, 
who is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab's the king in the north, and Jezebel is the daughter of Ethbaal, who was the king of Sidon, which is over where Lebanon is today, over on the coast. And he was also the high priest of Baal. So she is the number one promoter of sexual perversion and fertility religions in the northern kingdom. And she brought all of her uh, priests of Baal and Asherah with her into the northern kingdom. They outlawed the worship of Yahweh. This was the whole backdrop for the persecution of Elijah and Elisha and that whole story. But their daughter is uh, Athaliah, and Athaliah marries Jehoram. They have a son, Ahaziah, who has several brothers, and a grandson, Joash. Joash is the real uh, wonderful king, the good king that comes out of all of these events. But that just gives you an overview of the people. Now, Athaliah is the centerpiece of this story. She's the only queen that ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah, and she ruled from 841 to 835 B.C., just about 90 years after Solomon died, so we, and about 150 years after David died. So we see that this is, uh, uh, we see how quickly a civilization can become perverted. In just a period of less than 100 years, Israel plunged from its high point to one of its lowest points in Israel. Now, if you want to go home and read about these events, you can do so. They're covered in 2 Kings 9 through 11 and also in 2 Chronicles 21. All I'm going to do this morning is just give you a brief synopsis. First of all, when Ahab, the evil king in the north, dies, his son Joram becomes king. Now, Jezebel was still alive, and she was still carrying out all of her evil schemes and conspiracies. Now, at this same time, Jehoshaphat is ruling in Judah. When Jehoshaphat died, his son Jehoram became king. Jehoram was married to Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and she comes to the south, and she brings with her all of the priests of Baal, the priestesses of the Asherah, and she introduces all of this uh, sexual perversion and the fertility religions into the southern kingdom, and she influences Jehoram so that he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And as we've seen, that is a term indicating uh, idolatry and rejection of God as the God of Israel. And so he follows in the footsteps of the northern kingdom, and now the worship of God has been pretty much outlawed and is being destroyed within God's people in the kingdom of Israel, which is divided now into a northern and a southern kingdom. Now, Jehoram, uh, when Jehoram took the throne, remember he had six brothers from Jehoshaphat? These are all the seed of David. That's the bouncing ball we're watching. You know, remember the little bouncing ball? Just follow that bouncing ball. He, what the first, one of the first things Jehoram did was he had his six brothers assassinated. Oh, now we're wiping out the seed of David. So this begins to limit that Davidic line. So this is seen in Second Chronicles chapter 21, verses 2 through 4. Now, Jehoram comes under divine discipline, and all the text says is he had some sort of intestinal disease. 
that uh, caused him severe pain, and he died after about two years as his intestines just came out of his body. So that's just a horrible death. Uh, according to Second uh, Chronicles 21.17, he and Athaliah not only had a son named Ahaziah, but he had several brothers, and these brothers were killed through various raids from the Philistines and uh, the Arabs. Again, what we have is assaults on the Davidic line. See how the seed is being narrowed, and Satan, of course, is the one behind all of these assaults to try to block God from fulfilling his purposes towards the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. Now, when Jehoram died, he is briefly succeeded by his son Ahaziah of Judah. Now, there's Ahaziah over in the northern kingdom, so sometimes people get confused. They have the same name, but they're two different people. Ahaziah of Judah ruled less than a year before he is assassinated by a character named Jehu. Now, Jehu is the commander of the armies in the northern kingdom, and this shows, this is a great principle, this shows how God uses uh, one person who is bad, but not as bad as the other guys, to wipe out the worst guys. See, sometimes we get involved in political elections, not unlike the one we're in now. And people say, well, there's one candidate that's really bad. The other guy, well, he's bad too. And I've heard people say, well, if you vote for either one of them, you're voting for evil. Well, it seems to me that this is a great illustration to show how what God is doing is he uses one guy who's somewhat bad to deal with the other guys who are worse. And so he he anoints Jehu to be the next king in the northern kingdom and has Jehu instigate a revolt against um, uh, against the king in the north who is Joram. And Joram is just as evil as his father Ahab. And so uh, we have the story about Jehu bringing the army back across from the Transjordan back into the northern kingdom and he leads a revolt against Joram and assassinates him. Well, Joram and Jehoram were real buddy-buddy at this time, Jehoram being the king in the south, and he's up visiting his uh, friend, his brother-in-law, Joram, in the north when Jehu comes. Well, this scares Jehoram, so he begins to try to get back south, get home again, and he hides out in Samaria. Now, let me give you a little map here. Jezreel is where they have the capital. This is where uh, Joram is going to be killed. Samaria is where uh, uh, Jehoram escapes to, and he hides out there, and Jehu finds him and assassinates him. Lovely bunch of people. Now, Jehu is a worshiper of God, but only so-so, kind of like a lot of political leaders we have. They use the veneer of Christianity. Some of them, it may be, uh, partially sincere. They may be genuine believers, but they don't know much, and they're willing to let everything else go along uh, as long as they have their political power. And that's kind of like Jehu. He wiped out the and completely destroyed the worship of Baal in the northern kingdom. That was God's mission for him. But he left the other idolatries in place, the golden calves in Bethel, the golden calf in Bethel and up in Dan and continued that idolatry. He did not uh, uh, 
uh, reinforce a consistent worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, throughout the northern kingdom. So uh, after he kills Jehoram, Jehoram is survived by his widow, the evil queen Athaliah. Now, she's just a lovely person, and she is energized by all of this false religion, and ultimately behind that you have Satan. And the first thing that she does when she gets to the throne is to have all of her grandchildren killed. She wants every one of them killed. Well, all those grandchildren are what? They're heirs to the Davidic throne. So you've got to follow that seed line. And so this is now something like the third assault we've seen in this period, trying to destroy and wipe out the seed of David. But uh, Jehoram had another uh, daughter, and she gets this young baby Joash, and she takes him to her husband, who Jehoiada, who is the high priest in the temple, and they hide Joash in the temple, and they raise him in the temple, and Athaliah has no idea he, he's, he's alive, that he exists, and they teach him the law, and they teach him all about Yahweh and all the great promises that God made to Israel, and when uh, Joash is seven years old, uh, Jehoiada trots him out onto the front porch of the temple in full view of Athaliah at the palace, and puts the royal purple robe on him and crowns him king, makes sure it's a, it's a popular day where everybody is out and the temple is crowded and there's no way to avoid this. And Athaliah just about has a nervous breakdown on the spot, cries out treason, treason, and Jehoiada sends the temple guards over to arrest her and they bring her down uh, outside the walls of the temple so they don't desecrate the temple and they execute her. And Joash is made king, and as long as Jehoiada was alive, which was he lived to be 130, as long as he was alive, uh, Joash followed the law, loved the Lord, and there was a genuine revival in the land. It's a tremendous story of God's grace and goodness at the time, and Baal worship is wiped out in the southern kingdom, and uh, it's a glorious time, one of the great high points in Israel's history. But after Jehoiada died, Joash begins to compromise with idolatry, but uh, he is the founder of a dynasty. The next four generations are very godly kings in Israel. But the point of all this is that there is this tremendous assault on the Davidic seed during this time to try to prevent God from bringing about his promises to Israel. And you have to follow that ball through history. Otherwise, you get, you'll, you'll just get lost in the weeds. And there's a lot of ways to get all caught up in all kinds of details and trends and wonderful things to study in history. But we have to understand uh, the major uh, panorama of what God is doing. Now, the next big event that happens that Satan is also behind has to do with both the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here, but around the midpoint to late point of the 8th century from about 740 on. Assyria has grown to this massive empire. Syria is roughly northern, northern Iraq today, that area, and they are gobbling up every territory around them, uh, much like the Soviets did after World War II, and they come marching into uh, the northern kingdom 
of, of uh, Israel, and they conquer it, and they bring out uh, all the Jews, and they, re- and they deport them and send them around the empire, which was their modus operandi, to resettle them in various portions of the empire in order to wipe out their uh, ethnic identity. But before they did that, a number of these Jews had headed south, and they had headed south under the idolatry of the Ahab kings as well. So you still have remnants of all the tribes in the south, and I pointed that out last time. So that pretty much does away with this argument that nobody knows where the ten lost tribes are. But that's where that idea came from, is from the deportation of the ten tribes in the northern kingdom under the Assyrian invasion. And then there's the Babylonian invasion that comes some hundred and uh, 20 years later, 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes into the southern kingdom in his first invasion, second invasion in 593, and then in 586 B.C. he conquers the southern kingdom of Judah, destroys the temple, and takes a host of captives back to Babylon. So it seems like, wow, Satan is running. I want you to notice this, that God shows how he controls history because Satan seeks to destroy what God is doing, but all of a sudden it turns out that he was, what he did was really working out God's plan all along. And so God is not going to allow the nation to be wiped out. We have that wonderful story that takes place in, uh, uh, later in the kingdom of the Persians with Esther, which shows that no matter how much people try to destroy the Jews, God still overrides it and protects them. And that's the whole story of the book of Esther. But what comes out of the one of the things that comes out of the Babylonian invasion, the Babylonian captivity, is a second key element that, that fits behind the purposes in Revelation 7, and that is a prophecy known as Daniel's 70 weeks. And at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is an old man by this time, and he's reading through the prophecies in Jeremiah, and he realizes that according to Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, that God still has a plan to restore Israel to the land and promised that he would only take them out of the land for 70 years. And David, I mean, uh, uh, Daniel can count, and he knows that he's been there almost 70 years and that that captivity is almost over with. And God had promised in the Old Testament in passages like uh, Leviticus 26, 40 to 42, that uh, God would bring them back after uh, they uh, were taken out of the land. And in Leviticus 26, uh, 40, we read that if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they have also have walked contrary to me. And then in verse 42, God says, Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. That's the Abrahamic covenant. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, and I will remember the land, and God will bring them back to the land. So Daniel reads this. He stands as the prophet intercessor for the people, and he confesses their sin and prays to God to uh, restore them to the land according to his promise. And God sends an angel, Gabriel, to him to give him this remarkable prophecy. And it begins in verse 24, and I'm just going to hit some of the high points here because we've gone through this in, in much detail in the past. It's one of the greatest prophecies in the Scripture and, again, shows that the Bible just isn't the product of human imagination. 
In Daniel 9.24, God said 70 weeks had been decreed for your people. Now, your people is a technical phrase throughout the Old Testament for the Jews. They're God's chosen people. And 70 weeks is not 70 weeks of days. It is 70 periods of seven, literally, in the, in the Hebrew. So 70 periods of seven would be 70 times seven. That's 490. We have a little math lesson this morning, so I try to track with it. So this gives the broad outline of this history is going to involve 490 years for the Jews. And the purpose is to wrap up these, these various uh, purposes, to finish the transgression. That's their idolatry and rebellion against God. That doesn't happen till the end times. To make an end of sin, that doesn't happen to, to the tribulation as well. To make atonement for iniquity, again, that relates to the tribulation period. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that happens at the end with the establishment of the kingdom. To seal up vision and prophecy, meaning to bring all these things to fruition. And to anoint the most holy place, that's the uh, millennial temple that comes in after the tribulation period. So all this moves towards the, that what we now see as the tribulation period. And so in verse 25, God says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven and 62 is 69. It will be, and remember we're dealing with 70, so that leaves an extra week. It will be built again with plaza and moat. That indicates that, that the beginning point is when this decree to rebuild it with plaza and moat, all of its defenses, even in times of distress, it will survive. And then God says, after the 62 weeks, that's the first the seven weeks, then the 62, so it's really after the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 A.D. with the Romans. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And then verse 27 deals with that last week. And he will make a covenant with the many for one week. That refers to the prince who is to come, the Antichrist. That one-week period is a seven-year period, the last period of human history. And uh, he'll make a covenant for one week. Now, I don't want to get into the, all the details of the passage. I just want to go back and, and look at why this is key to Revelation 7. I'll put this in a chart form for you so you can understand it. There's a decree to restore. This decree is pretty certainly the decree of Artaxerxes on March the 5th, 444 B.C., recorded in Deuteronomy 2, 1 through 3. And there uh, we have the specific time given. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. goes on to tell how Nehemiah will give a petition to, ne to uh, the king to allow him to take a group of Jews back to the land to complete the building of the city. That starts it. There's seven weeks plus 62 weeks. That equals 69 weeks, 69 periods of seven. Now, that's for your people, Israel. Seven times seven is 49 years. 62 times seven is 434 years. 434 years plus 49 years equals 483 years. Now, in Scripture, and I'm not going to go into the details of how we get this, but in Scripture, a prophetic year is usually based on a solar year of 360 days. So if you take 
483 years times 360 days, you come up with a figure 173,880 days. And there are numerous scholars who have worked all of this out. And the next verse said, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. If you take 173,880 days and you add them to March 5th, 444 B.C., then you come up with the Sunday just prior to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in 33 uh, A.D. on March the 30th. So this gives us our time frame. Messiah the Prince is cut off on March the 30th, 33 A.D., with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, if 70 times 7 equals 490 years, and 69 times 7 only equals 483 years, or 173,880 days, the question is, what happened to the other seven years? Where are they? Well, those other seven years are the final seven years in the tribulation period. That's that one week that Daniel 9.27 talks about. And so there is this interlude between the cross and the future seven-year period known as the, great, known as the tribulation. And this is divided into these two periods of time. So this tells us that, and told the Jews that God wasn't finished with them. He was still going to maintain his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he was still going to establish the kingdom, and the Jews weren't going to be wiped out because at the time Daniel received this revelation, they're all in, in captivity, and it looks like it's over with. So this, for them, was a great promise that it's not over with. There is a future for us. But what this this prophecy also says is there's going to also be this future judgment from the prince who is to come, who's the Antichrist, and there's going to be a period of time before the final seven weeks comes into account. That's what we're talking about. That's why you have these 144,000 Jews saved and sealed during the tribulation period is because the church had to be taken out so that God could return his emphasis to Israel and he's going to save and seal these 144,000 and they will be evangelists during the tribulation period. Now, back to our line that we're following. Satan engineers these attacks. We've seen the attack uh, through Athaliah, the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions. The third one's Herod's murder of the infants in Matthew 2, story we're all familiar with, with the uh, gospel story, the birth stories, that when Jesus was born, uh, when the uh, Magi came to uh, Jerusalem looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, and it wasn't Herod. Herod was really paranoid. He was always afraid somebody was going to take the throne away from him. So Herod had all the infants under the age of two uh, killed, and this was another attack uh, engineered by Satan in the background to try to destroy the seed of David. And, of course, his great attempt was the assassination of the Messiah. Satan really thought he had won this time. He got Jesus betrayed by Judas. He's arrested. He's going to go to the cross. He has foiled God's plan. But, see, this is how God's work works, even in the midst of 
when, when everything looks dark and defeated, God is working in his grace and he will always snatch victory and glory out from what Satan thinks he has won. And so it is that assault on the Messiah that ultimately seals his doom. And it's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis uh, chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would, uh, that the, the seed of the serpent would strike the seed of the woman on the heel, not a mortal wound, but the seed of the woman, Christ, would strike the seed of the serpent on the head, a fatal wound. Satan is defeated by the cross. And then fifth, we have the rise of anti-Semitism throughout the period from the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 all the way up to the present Roman uh, anti-Semitism during the various revolts during the uh, period from 70 AD up through 150 AD, uh, Islamic anti-Semitism, European anti-Semitism, which of course ultimately culminates in the Holocaust. And in the Holocaust, Satan thought that he could destroy the, uh, the, the Jews in the crematoriums of the Nazis, mostly located in, in Poland. But once again, God in his grace uses Satan's attempts to destroy the seed to fulfill his own purposes because it was in, it was the, the, the fires of Auschwitz and Treblinka and Sobibor that lit another fire, and that was the fire of Zionism that had already been ignited for about 100 years. But it was really at that time that the Jews realized they had to have a secure homeland. And so uh, from uh, this, this country, this small uh, area in the Middle East that was the traditional homeland of Israel that had a population of about 200,000 Jews at the beginning, at the turn of the century, 1900, uh, now has a population of uh, about five or six million Jews. And so we see the hand of God working. So this is why we come to Revelation 7, verse 4, that we have this sealing of the 144,000, because God is working out something in history. And if you stop and think about all the individuals, the individual lives that went through various times of, of horrors and persecutions and sufferings all throughout history, they're no different from uh, they're no different from you and I, but they were able to survive with joy in the midst of those sufferings, that is, those who were believers and understood God's plan, because they knew God's plan, they understood what he was doing and that eventually there will be uh, the vindication of God uh, in this future period that we call the tribulation. God will eventually judge all evil, and he will destroy Satan's plan. And so what we see in Revelation 7 is really the, the, a, a culmination of, of centuries of God's plan. It is a restoration of his focus on Israel as the redemptive messenger of God in the tribulation period. Tremendous sign of God's, uh, God's grace. Now, there are many other things that I could point out related to this, but what we need to remember 
as we look at all of this, is the focus is really on those promises that God made to Abraham and to David. God fulfilled them. He fulfilled them mostly in the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is that seed of Abraham through whom God is going to bless everyone. And it is through his death on the cross that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin, and it is at that death of the cross that Jesus Christ vindicates the righteousness of God. Because as I pointed out at the beginning, the focal point here is on the character of God. That's the challenge. And what we see is the omniscience of God is vast enough that he knows all the details that he can provide a perfect solution. And in omniscience, he can bring about his plan. In omnipotence, God's omnipotence is powerful enough to bring about his plan to overcome all of the schemes of the devil and to establish uh, his kingdom on the earth, which is what happens at the end of Revelation. And God's justice will judge sin at the cross, and God's justice will destroy evil, and God's righteousness is satisfied at the cross. So all of this fits together as a vindication of God's character, and it is not does not show an assault on God's character that he just can't handle suffering or evil. He's not able to handle all of these things. He's too weak. He's too impotent. The reality of Scripture is what all of this shows is that God has handled everything. And so all that is left for us is to simply to trust in him, to trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross as our Savior and in the midst of adversity, suffering, crisis, calamities, whatever we face, to also learn to relax and trust in him because he has a perfect plan and his will will be done. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to uh, be reminded of how you have worked uh, in a magnificent way down through history and despite the schemes of man and the schemes of Satan and despite all of the wicked and evil things that have transpired, we see that grace continues, that your overriding justice uh, watches over things, that your authority is such that you, in your sovereignty, that you control all things and you bring about your purposes in history. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid them in full so that you can have eternal life by simply trusting in him as your Savior. The instant you believe Jesus died for you and that that alone is all that you need for salvation, for righteousness, for forgiveness, then at that instant you are forgiven of all sins. You are placed into the body of Christ, you receive eternal life, you are justified. All these things happen instantaneously and you have new life in Christ that can never be taken from you. Father, it's our prayer that we would take a strong encouragement from what we say today, knowing that even when we face the heartaches, the difficulties, the challenges of life, that, that you're in control, that you are not unaware of our difficulties are suffering you have provided for us and given us the solution we need for everything that we can glorify you in every situation and we can have stability and peace and confidence even in the midst of difficulty because of who you are and what you've done 
We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.